All right, we are really glad that you're here. We're in a two-part series. We're right at the beginning of it called Epicenter, where death was swallowed up in victory. I've been anticipating this since December, and uh, I couldn't wait to get here as we talk about the epicenter of our faith, the foundation of everything that we believe, and we're looking at two parts in this, and we'll conclude on Easter Sunday. So week one is crucifixion. Can you guess what week two is? Resurrection. So we're looking at crucifixion and resurrection as the epicenter of our faith. And uh, the more I think about this concept, the greater it impacts me. The more I realize it's not just something that took place a long time ago. It is a powerful, powerful thing we're pondering together. Now, let's begin with the fact that in our world... There's a lot of darkness. In our world, there's a lot of questions and bleakness. Here's a quote that comes from an actor that uh, writes about our world and his reaction to it. Drugs and alcohol are not my problem. Reality is my problem. Drugs and alcohol are my solution. They fill up the hole inside of me. Russell Brand. I don't know much about Russell Brand, but it sure seems like he has a bleak world view, where the world is so dark that drugs and alcohol are the solution to deal with reality. That is a bleak and dark view of life. And yet so many in our world view reality through a lens of darkness and struggle with that reality. So when darkness strikes, what do you do? When darkness strikes, how do you cope? When darkness strikes, where do you turn? And what is your view of reality? Another actor has a quote that I want to share with you. And here it is on the screen. Jim Carrey, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. And here's another opposite side where it seems like everything is coming his direction that the world has to offer. Success and money and every pleasure that he would strive for, he could get to, and yet he was so disillusioned, he said everybody should have this experience because then you will learn that wealth and pleasures and all of that you're striving after, even that doesn't give you the answer to what we're seeking. There's so much more. You get all of that and you wonder, what's all the hype? Is this all there is? There's got to be more, and that's where people end up. When they think they've arrived, they realize they have not arrived. Now what? And so many find themselves there. Another gentleman was a deep thinker, a prolific writer, and a person that was really, really, at one point, on the verge of suicide, and it was over wrestling with this question. And before he, I share that question with you, he was a prolific writer who had all the money, and he had all the success, and everybody writing about him said that he is one of the best in literature. And 
He, he then wanted relationships. He got married. He had 13 kids. Everybody looking at him would think he has everything, and yet he struggled with the meaning of life. And he writes this, Leo, Tolst- Leo Tolstoy, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? And if you do not have an adequate answer to the questions of darkness like these then you will struggle in all of life. He had everything life could offer, and yet he knew death was coming, and so it undermined all joy and brought him to the verge of suicide. What does it all mean? It's meaningless, it's worthless if I can't solve the darkness of this question. And I'm happy to present to you the fact that Jesus claims to be the answer of those dark questions. He's the one that said, I am the bread of life. So the bleak questioner who says, I don't think drugs and alcohol are the problem. That's my solution. They're filling themselves with a solution because reality seems so dark. Jesus says, no, there's a better solution than that. I present you me. I come to fill you with a life that you will see as a solution. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give you life to the full. Can he deliver? Can he deliver on such huge claims, presenting himself as a solution to the darkness of this world? And that's what we're investigating today. So another way to put that these series of questions and this series of wrestling with the meaning of life is to put it this way in a simple one-line question. How can his gruesome death, that is the death of Jesus Christ, how can his gruesome death be called good? Now, here we are on Palm Sunday, and we're anticipating Easter next Sunday, but the Passion Week is this week. On Friday is the celebration that we call Good Friday, because Jesus was crucified on Friday, so we call it Good Friday. How can his gruesome death be called good? And that's a valid question. If you were to ask Mary, the mother of Jesus, on Friday evening of his crucifixion, and you said to her, you know, isn't this so great? Good Friday is here. She would be aghast that you call the most devastating day, the most confusing, the darkest day of her existence as good. How is it that you can call this good? And that is the question that we're dealing with together today. Now, um, very quickly, I say this frequently, but I'll say it again. We are talking about a real person of history, Jesus. There's not a historian alive anymore that would try to say he didn't exist. He's a purely mythical figure because the science of history will attest to the fact that he is the most written about figure in history ever of that ancient time. Secular as well as believing writers writing about him. It's not contested that he existed. It is not contested that he was crucified. Here is what is contested, that he rose from the dead. Or that his crucifixion has any meaning beyond 2,000 years ago and what happened then. And so we ask ourselves, How can we call this good? And if it is good, how is it good for us today? How could the death of Jesus be good for us today? Even if we believe in the resurrection, which we'll celebrate next week, which I do, what about the death? 
what does his death have to do with me? And how does that help in this dark world? That is the question we're wrestling with in this concept of the epicenter. So here we go. Point number one, don't be surprised by darkness. Jesus predicted it. Now, we already looked at how the world and the majority of the population totally expects this dark world to be dark. And when darkness hits us, it's what they've expected and they're figuring out whatever way they can cope with it that they can. I am frequently almost surprised that I run into believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who seem shocked when they experience darkness and they begin to experience dark doubts with that darkness as if they expected that now that I follow Jesus who claims to be giving me life to the full and now that I follow Jesus who claims to be the bread of life, now that I follow him, it doesn't make sense that I'm experiencing this darkness. And yet Jesus predicted it. Jesus said it's going to be dark. We're going to look at that in a moment. Before we do, let's talk about that event of this week that we're celebrating, that event that we're remembering. It began on a Thursday evening this way when Jesus predicted the darkness that everybody would be shocked by and surprised by. John 13, 21 reads this way. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And so all the disciples were shocked by this because they're in this inner room with the inner circle of loyal followers and they're all ready for the kingdom, kingdom of the Messiah to come and now the Messiah whom they placed their faith in and followed is saying, one of you is going to betray me. And they're all looking at each other and saying, who, is it me, is it me? And then they say, uh, <laughs> You ask him, who is it? You ask him, who is it? Let's ask Mikey. No, they said John. Let's ask Johnny. Because Johnny is the youngest, and Johnny happened to be leaning against Jesus right next to him, and Peter gives him the words, ask him, ask him, who is it? And John whispers into Jesus' ear the question, and Jesus whispers back, and my understanding was John gets specifically, he knows, with Jesus. And I asked the question, why did Jesus want John to know, and why does he want us to know that he knew? We've covered this theme before. Jesus knew. He knew what was coming. He knew to, to the detail what was coming. It's not something he can make happen. You can't make somebody betray you. You can't make somebody determine your death. And yet, just like all the prophecies of the Old Testament scriptures, now he is prophesying ways that he cannot control, and it's going to come together just exactly like he says he knows. And Jesus says, this bread that I dip into this stuff, whoever I hand this to, it is he. And then here's what we read. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Now, that's darkness. And so Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. Jesus already knew that within the pockets, if he had pockets, within the pockets of the pouch or the purse or however he's carrying his coinage, he has 30 pieces of silver he's already collected for the betrayal of Jesus. And Jesus knows he's planning this. And now at this moment, Judas is turning heel, 
and going out and betraying Jesus, and Jesus predicts it, lets others know that he predicts it, tells John so we know who we're talking about. They thought he was just going out to make arrangements with money because he's the treasurer. And we are told Jesus knew. In John 13, verse 30, we read this. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And then this curious detail that John adds, and it was night. And he is not just trying to set the setting to let you know, that oh, they started this meal together in the daylight, and now it's dark. He has, throughout his gospel, given us themes of light and darkness and portrayed the sin and rebellion and the night apart from the light of the world. And Jesus has predicted in two places in John already that he's the light of the world and he's going to leave and it's going to be night. And this Judas walks out into that night. And what I want us to see is this, that at the gathering of darkness before the epicenter, it's like this huge gathering of spiritual darkness in a realm we can't see. And so Judas, who already has Satan enter into him, which we can't see, demons are on the verge of what they think is the massive victory, the conquering and stomping out the light of the world. They think they finally got him. And the massive gathering of darkness is what Judas walks out into in collaboration with And this gathering of darkness is coming together and Jesus is not surprised. He knows it's happening. In fact, it's almost like he says, what you're about to do, do it quickly. We're here. It's time. He's orchestrating it. He's prodding it along. All systems coming together. The darkness is in the dark on this one. And Jesus is in the light on this one. And it's all coming together at a crucifixion. John chapter 16, verse 33, as if Jesus needs to prepare us for this darkness, as if Jesus needs to prepare his inner circle for this darkness, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Can you believe it? He knows everything that's coming. He knows the darkness is gathering. It's massive in proportion, and yet he speaks of peace. And that he has come to give it. In this world, you will have trouble. Highlight that. Circle it in your Bible. Remember this. The next time the darkness comes, don't think, oh, God God must not be God. God must not care. He cares about his son. And his son predicts it. It will come. When you experience troubles... You will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I'd like to put it a different way. On the screen is another quote that I want to put it this way. We follow an invincible leader who was able to overcome the largest gathering of spiritual darkness imaginable. Now, some of us have some vivid imaginations. I've read some books that foster some of that imagination. I've read the Bible that fosters some of that imagination. Some of that imagination is sanctified imagination. It's real. I don't know if you believe that these powers of darkness are real. I do. I find it interesting that a lot of atheists, if they're consistent, would also believe that evil is non-existent because evil is a description 
of something very dark. Not just choice. Evil. I believe that evil is real. Jesus did also. And he entered into, willingly, voluntarily, the epicenter of darkness as gathering of darkness is coming against them. They think they're going to win. They think they're finally going to have their world to themselves and rule in the power of darkness. And Jesus has come to set his kingdom established in it and do this massive reversal. And he has just said, it's going to get dark. Don't worry. I have overcome that darkness. Point number two, don't deny darkness. You too are Barabbas. If you're not familiar with the story, here's where we get into some interesting things that take place in this. Don't deny darkness. You too are Barabbas. In Matthew 27, 15, this is now Friday morning, Jesus has been arrested Thursday night. It was a massive gathering of darkness, huge crowds, and Jesus set some things straight, but they arrest him, almost voluntarily so, and they have a mock trial with the Jewish Sanhedrin that night, and now they are dragging him before the Roman court so they can get the execution they want. And we read this curious detail. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. Pilate is going to, in the middle of all this trial, receive a message from his wife saying, don't have anything to do with this innocent man. I had a terrible, troubling dream this night. Don't have anything to do with this man. Even before he receives that message, he already is feeling really strange about this request to kill this man because there is a following, and he's a good man. And there's something wrong about this that's taking place, and he knows it. And so... Interestingly, at this festival, this is what festival? This is the festival of the Passover celebration. Had been celebrated for 1,500 years by Jewish people. It's a huge festival to celebrate the Passover of the death angel that spared the firstborn of the Egyptians so that this massive release from bondage could take place. They're celebrating the victory of God 1,500 years previous. The Passover lambs are being crucified. Oh, did I say crucified? slaughtered, so that the blood of the lamb could be applied to the homes and the firstborn released. And now, because of this celebration, a custom arose, even among the Roman ranks, to release one prisoner a year in this substitutionary image where one person is released because, after all, God passed over even the guilt of so many by the substitutionary atonement of the blood applied by the lamb, which prefigured the entire temple system, which came later. A substitutionary sacrifice can take care of your sins and you'll be released from the guilt of your sins. And so this custom in the Roman arena (laughs) takes place where they're gonna release somebody and it's gonna be Barabbas or Jesus. And so here's what we read. 27, verse 17, so when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? This is a really ridiculous question. We read in the different Gospels a little bit about Barabbas, and we know that he's a murderer, we know that he's a robber, we know that he's an insurrectionist, we know that he's notorious. If you put it all together, here's the best word I can put together in one, he's a terrorist, And they want 
this kind of terrorist revival, this terrorism to undermine the Roman power so that the Jews could have a revolution, and yet this wicked, murdering, thieving terrorist is put up against the innocent Jesus, and the question is asked, which should we release to you? And the answer should be obvious, but it's not. The religious leaders would rather have the terrorist released than this do-gooder who claims to be one with God the Father. And so they ask for Barabbas to be released. And Barabbas is released. Now, later in the story... That's where Pilate says, I want to have nothing to do with this. I wash my hands of this. Let it be upon your heads. And they say, yes, yes, let it be upon our heads. May his blood be upon us and our children. They don't even know what they're saying, but it's actually a theological truth. His blood will either be upon us and our children in guilt because we reject him, Jesus, or his blood will be upon us in acceptance of what he is doing in substitution for us. They don't see any of this. When Pilate says, why? What has he done? They don't offer a reason. They offer volume and repetition. And this crowd gets louder and louder. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So they want the blood of Jesus. And we listen to John and the echo of John as he tells us about John the Baptist, another John who says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's in view of that that I just have this question because we have to compare ourselves not with Jesus, but with Barabbas. So to get this idea across, I want to do two lessons in the first is an object lesson. I've asked my son Luke and my grandson Lewis if they wouldn't mind throwing some cotton balls as an object lesson. So Luke and Lewis Hammond, come on up. Lewis, come right up here and I'm going to have you stand on the stage and you got a great throwing arm. I'm going to have you throw a cotton ball. Lewis is four and um, he calls me Papa. Luke is a lot older than four. He calls me Dad. Sometimes he calls me other things. All right, now, here's the contest. Now, Lewis, I want your dad to make sure you don't fall off. You can get as close to there as you can. And I put you up here because otherwise, it's an unfair advantage. Your dad's taller than you. We're going to play a contest and try to get you to throw as far to the back wall as you can, okay? Crank up. I'll give you more than one throw so you can practice. Throw as far to the back wall as you can. Anytime, ready? Throw it. Okay, we made it to the front row. All right, if you want to... Take two steps, you can do it too. You want to take a couple steps as long as you don't come off the edge. Throw it just like you would that rock in a pond as far as you can. Ready? All right. Cotton balls are not very easy to throw. Luke, can you do better than that? Okay, we see that the major athlete that's uh, six foot plus and dwarfs his dad. Um, that's why I'm standing up here, by the way. And... Uh, we see that we've got maybe a four, five, six, maybe eight foot at most difference between the two. All right, give them a hand. Thank you. Now, what's the point of all of that? Well, we want to say, I am nothing like Barabbas. Barabbas is a terrorist. He is notorious. He is a murderer, and I'm a good person. 
Well, if we had a contest between ourselves and Barabbas, and we did a cotton ball throwing contest, one person would win as far as getting the cotton ball as far as we could get it to the back wall. But did you notice we're not very close to the back wall? Not at all. We're actually closer to each other than we are from the distance of the furthest throne to the back wall. Now let's just take this a step further. Let's just remove the building and say this is a contest of throwing cotton balls to the sun. Now, if we had Jesus standing up here and we're comparing ourselves with Jesus instead of Barabbas, Jesus could throw a cotton ball to the sun because he can walk on water. He can break rules of gravity. He is the one who made all the natural rules, he can just go, fine. And it would disintegrate on the way up. The distance between here and what Jesus can do is infinite. The distance between us and Barabbas are so small by comparison, we are just like Barabbas. And yet, we're asked, who should we release, Jesus or Barabbas? They chose, let's release Barabbas, as if Barabbas was the innocent one, as if Barabbas was okay. It's a ridiculous question. And yet, Jesus volunteers to take Barabbas' place. Now, here's the irony. Barabbas' name. First of all, in some translations, even in this verse in Matthew, it's, who would you like to have crucified, Jesus, Barabbas, or Jesus the Christ. And Barabbas is used almost like a title. And Jesus was a very common name. So his first name, it's odd, isn't it? Would you like Jesus, Savior, insurrectionist, terrorist, Savior, released? Or would you like Jesus, Savior, who is going to surrender all to be released? And they choose Barabbas. Now, Aside from the fact that they share the same first name, we've got Barabbas and we've got the Christ. Do you know what Barabbas means? Son of the Father. Bar Abba. It's Aramaic. Barabba. Barabba, Son of the Father. Isn't it interesting that the Son of God, the Son of the Father, is coming down to earth to set free the son of Abba. We are all Barabbas if we allow the substitution to take place. Then we are sons of the Father because the son of the Father took our place. And the more we fight and try to prove ourselves good, the more we have no idea what sin is about and how holy and pure and bright the light of Jesus is. Don't deny your sin. We're more like Barabbas than you think. Point number three. Don't be defeated by darkness. Let Jesus absorb it. Don't be defeated by darkness. Let Jesus absorb it. Here's an insightful question. Why did Jesus die? So we've set us up to think through, okay, so the resurrection is, yahoo, he conquered death, but so what? What does that mean for us? Why did Jesus die? Now, I want to give us a very personal answer to that question, and then I want to give us a very theological answer to that question. In fact, I want to give us the most personal 
answer to the question, why did Jesus have to die? And then I'm going to follow that up by the most theological answer for why did Jesus have to die. Now, the most personal reason. Paul wrote this in Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And I'm, I was almost caught by surprise because in our world, I'm so used to people saying, uh, you accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And I don't read personal Savior anywhere in Scripture. Accept the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior as if it's, you, know, you can put him in your pocket. Now he's your personal Savior. You can carry him around like he's yours. And it just doesn't seem very scriptural to me. But I was caught off guard because Paul himself says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Paul always talks about you, plural, and us, and we. Jesus often talks about us and we. He even teaches us to pray, our Father, pluralizing the whole thing. But I was caught to the heart because Paul is not afraid to say, he loved me. And that's why later on he says, even while I was a sinner, he loved me. While I was still a sinner, he loved me who loved me and gave himself for me. Why did Jesus die? He died for you. He loves you. And he knows that you're caught in darkness, stuck in sin. You keep messing up. And there's no way out for you until a Savior helps you. He knows this. And he died for you. That's the most personal answer to the question I can give you, and it's Paul's answer. And Paul didn't know this until later because when Jesus died for him, Paul was murderously against the movement. And then the most theological answer to the question is in 2 Corinthians 5.21, And it reads this way, God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want you to picture the scene as Jesus, in a sense, goes out into the night and he is the light of the world. Judas went out into the night and he is being consumed, overtaken, overpowered, indwelt. There is no hope for Judas anymore. Not even Jesus can save Judas at this point because he has gone out into the night in an allegiance with the night and he's turned his back on Jesus. He's come to a rejection point and he is betraying Jesus. But Jesus goes into that same darkness and he's going to absorb, 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 absorb all the darkness in the moment on the cross. And that's why the opening video was just this darkness delivers its worst. And then there's the flat line. And they think they have won. But we're going to cover to be continued next week. To be continued. But before we get there, I have said enough to cause us to introspect and to see if maybe it's true that that epicenter can suck the darkness right out of our lives and put it on the cross. That he who is God himself, who had no sin, was made to be sin for us so that in him we might become 
the righteousness of God. Would you stand with me? I don't think I'll need to say this in advance and pray it ahead of time. If you have a desire to pray a prayer to ask God to take your darkness away, pray this out loud with me right now. Here we go. Dear Lord Jesus, I am blown away that you loved me and gave yourself for me. I know there is darkness in me. I keep messing up my life. Thank you for absorbing my sin, releasing me, and giving me life. By your life and victory, help me to live right with you. Amen. Amen? To be continued, hope to see you all next week on Resurrection Sunday because we're going to look how there is a reversal. Light strikes back, and we're going to look at that together next week. If you need prayer today, we've got our prayer team to the right of the stage. Thank you for coming. Have a great week.